A lot of my role has been just validating feelings. Who am I to tell you that you shouldn't feel angry or upset or guilty or shameful? Any of those things. And that's kind of what I love about this space. No matter what you believe, no matter your religion, your race, none of that matters at the end of life. If we only gave people enough grace every day that we do at the end of life, the world would be a kinder place. Think of the last time you had someone you care about lose a loved one. You likely stumbled over what to say, what to do, how to approach it. You knew you needed to do something though, right? Like you knew you needed to at least acknowledge it, flowers, food. And what I've come to find just through lots of insights is the flowers, the casseroles are great, but there are so many other practical things that people need. What's up on Foundation? Dan Kihanya here. Thanks so much for checking out another episode of Founders Unfound. That was Kira Kindlin founder and CEO of Foreverly, a company with a mission to make dealing with death a little less stressful. Foreverly helps organizations support their employees who have experienced the death of a loved one. Kira was born to a family with deep roots to her hometown of Brooklyn. She emerged from college and business school, climbing the corporate ladder, leading all the way to Seattle and Microsoft. But it was her calling to volunteering and service that led her to the world of hospice, end of life, and the underserved season of bereavement. Kira saw that the passing of a loved one is an unguided, stressful, and dysfunctional experience for those grieving and for those who want to support. It's from this transformative understanding that Foreverly was born. We spoke with Kira recently, just after finishing the Techstars program. She has a great story. You'll want to listen in. Our episode is sponsored by Trajectory Startup, Ideation to Product Market Fit. This book is authored by entrepreneur and investor Dave Parker. It's one of the best guides out there for those at the earliest stages of the startup journey. To get Dave's book today, look for a link in the show notes or simply go to dkparker.com, amazon.com, or anywhere you like to buy your books. And please make sure to like and subscribe the podcast. We're available anywhere you get your podcasts, even YouTube. And if you like what you hear, please drop us a five-star review at Apple or at podchaser.com. And make sure to tell your friends about us. We do so appreciate every new listener. Now, on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented and underestimated backgrounds. This is the latest episode in our continuing series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Kira Kindlin, founder and CEO of Foreverly, a company with a mission to make dealing with death a little less stressful. Foreverly helps organizations support their employees who have experienced the death of a loved one. Welcome to the show, Kira. We're super excited to have you on. Thanks for making the time. Oh, absolutely. So excited to be here as well. All right. So to get started, I gave a little overview, but please help the listeners understand what Foreverly is exactly. Yeah. So, you know, oftentimes when I tell people I'm building a company centered on death, they often, you know, gasp like, wait, what do you mean? How could someone have the capacity to do that? And it really comes from my passion to help people experience and welcome the space to heal. You know, if I think about life moments, so many of them are celebratory from having a baby, buying a home, getting married. And death is pretty significant, but so overlooked. And there are so many people I've learned who are walking around really missing a loved one. 
And that's not being addressed, right? And there's so many reasons for that. Death is taboo and we're afraid of our mortality. And I can go on and on about that. But yeah, for Everly's whole purpose is to stand behind those who have lost a loved one and help support them as they figure out how to adjust to their new lifestyle without them. It's one of those things where it's that aha moment when you hear about it, like, yeah, of course, this is complicated and stressful and grieving is such a personal journey. And yet administratively, the world wants you to sort of react in certain ways. So it sounds like an awesome, awesome, impactful company. But before we dig more into Foreverly, let's hear a little bit about Kira. So tell us where you're from. Where did you grow up? Yeah, I am from Brooklyn. I am from Brooklyn, New York, born and raised, a lineage of Brooklynites, my parents, my grandparents. So it's wild to come so far from hailing from the good old streets of Brooklyn. Awesome. So that's a pretty cool lineage to be that many generations from Brooklyn. Did you grow up in a community that was predominantly Black or was it, you know, kind of a mixed neighborhood? What was that experience like? I grew up in a predominantly Black neighborhood, went to predominantly Black schools my entire like early life, elementary, junior high, high school. I had great experiences from like the movies, like the block parties, hanging out in the summertime, the ice cream trucks coming by, the fire hydrants with the water blowing. Like what you see in the movies was life. And it was amazing because I was just so happy. And yeah, a lot of that does impact me today. Yeah, that sounds like a super supportive environment. And do you have any entrepreneurs in your family? Great question. Both my mom and dad have had and have small businesses. And I took it for granted at the time, right? Not realizing what that meant. My mom's an artist. She would paint. That was always where she found solace. She'd stay up late at night and I can never understand why, but she'd be up painting. And, you know, she ran that business and has sold work. My dad as well. He actually is currently running a business helping people secure their packages in New York. And they are definitely been a huge influence on what it means to have an idea and actually see it through and figure out what it is that you can do to sell it. I love that. People underestimate, I think, the influence, especially on the small business side, because it is business in a microcosm. It's like real business. Like you got to make more money than you spend. You know, you got to be able to have customers and meet their needs and delight them. And it's really sort of that great raw essence of business. When you were growing up, did you have interests that echoed business or were you more into traditional like sports or music or anything like that? Growing up, I was on the debate team. I loved debate. I thought I was going to be a lawyer at some point, but that I didn't love reading that much in terms of the literature that's needed to go to law school. I did have like smart inklings. Like I did the garage sale, right? Set up a table in front of the stoop. <laughs> not a garage. We don't have those in Brooklyn or not many. <laughs> and sold stuff from the house. And that was kind of my first like experience really understanding, oh, I can make money off of things. Like, that was awesome. I think overall, I was the kid that my parents never limited what I could do. And I love that. I often say they never quieted my curiosity. If Kara wanted to try something, she'd try it. And that intrinsic motivation coupled with their love, it was golden growing up in a situation where neither my parents had gone to college and I was able to succeed in a way that was comfortable to me and I could choose what I wanted to do versus being forced to pick something. But yeah, the early adult Kira I wouldn't have never saw myself where I am now. That is for sure. That's awesome. I mean, what a gift, too, of this environment of 
people of color and a community and then parents that are supportive of a curious mind. That's awesome. So when you were thinking about coming out of high school and going to college, did you have a sense of what you thought you wanted to do or what you wanted to pursue? Not a clue. You know, I will always say access and exposure is so important. You know, while my parents gave me the freedom of doing what I wanted, it is not as if they knew at least how to expose or give me access to things that would, I mean, at this age now, I'm like mind blown by the number of things that can change your whole entire trajectory. And at that time, my parents, you know, they gave me love, which is like foundationally like what you need. Leaving high school, I knew I wanted to go to college. And actually, I knew I wanted to go to a predominantly white university because I had spent my life. I didn't know that, really, kind of mature decision to make. But I was like, I, I want to see world in a different way. I wanted to experience something completely new. And I had no idea what I was going to study. I knew it was going to be liberal arts, though. I always pick the thing that gives me a lot of options. I love it. And where did you end up for college? Yeah, I went to the University of Maryland in College Park. And what was your experience? Like you had this, it sounds like you had a desire to enter a place that was not predominantly black and you were searching for what that was like. You had a curiosity. How did it meet that goal of trying to understand that? And were there big surprises to that experience? Yeah, I think, well, first off, it was going from a completely black environment, black teachers, black store workers, black everything, to a white, you know, a predominantly white school. My, you know, I had my first white roommate and just navigating that. I was also very city. I was a city girl, you know, seeing the suburbs is like a joke. Even now, I have caterpillars outside and my husband thinks I'm crazy. But that shift to the University of Maryland and being around all these people, I did feel inadequate. I am struggling in certain classes. I had to do a lot more just to pass, and that's a lot, right? When people are flying with true colors. But the one thing I loved about Maryland and specifically Prince George's County is that it's a, a relatively great place for people of color and black people in particular. They do, they do really well here. And, and I don't know the stat, quite frankly, but it is one of the richest black counties in America, right? And so it was also like, wow, I was trying to adjust to this new world of being around others. I also had never seen just middle-class black people. And I'll never forget going to my, one of my good friends, I met her in freshman year and I went to her home. And I'd never seen black people in the six, seven bedroom house. That was astounding and she thought nothing of it. And that's literally was blocked. Everywhere she lived, there was black people with seven, eight bedroom homes. And so it was like this really weird, like double-edged, wow. You know, there are other facets that we can live. And then also I'm adjusting to being this black girl from Brooklyn at school, but it met my expectations. I think the serendipitous one was meeting my freshman year friend and going to her home like, oh my goodness, as, as much as I see the difference in how interacting and being around white people, Indian people was, I actually saw the difference with black people as well. That's an awesome story. Thanks for sharing that. And, you know, I think that's what college can do is it, it opens our eyes. You know, we grow up and Usually when we grow up, I grew up like you in a certain area and my whole life was basically there. It's like you think that's what the world looks like, right? And then you get to college and it's like, oh, there's people who don't have those same beliefs or didn't have that same experience. And, you know, if you're open-minded, you can learn about it. And it's pretty fascinating. So you were coming out of college. It sounds like it was a great experience for you. And at this point, maybe you had some idea what you wanted to do, or was it sort of like one of those, well, I guess I'm done, so I got to figure out what's next. 
I think a little bit of both. So I was very adamant about getting work experience while I was in college. So I, I worked a lot. I did. I, I did work study. I was a math tutor. I always held a job. I wanted supplementary income. My father had me working since I was 10, picking weeds and washing walls for my allowance at some point in time. So I knew what it meant to have a good work ethic. I sought jobs. And I say that to say I got really interested in public relations. I love the idea of communicating. My degree ended up being in communications in English. And I love being able to tell a story and translate and the translation that sometimes needs to occur from, you know, whether that be the company to people. And so I left the University of Maryland at the height of the market crash, though. So that's why I was, uh, well, I knew what I wanted to do, but it was very hard navigating that time. And it it actually took me a while to find a job. And when I did finally land something, it was amazing. I ended up in healthcare PR. Wow. Healthcare PR. Interesting. And that makes a lot of sense. Communications, PR. What was the thing that you came to love about it? And what was the thing that you sort of realized, "Mm, maybe this isn't so great? Well, I can start with that part. Healthcare PR lacked creative license, right? We're talking regulatory, clinical, legal, but there wasn't anything fun about it. And when you think about PR, you're like, oh, it's so flashy and media and you get all this cool stuff. And and that wasn't healthcare PR. Very necessary though. And what I did love about it is the opportunity to be that medium of translating, okay, here's a cancer drug that has had, you know, this number of trials. What does that mean to the layman person? I love that part of it. And I also had started at the time Twitter kind of had just became a thing. It was so interesting being at that forefront at the same time that this, you know, now huge company was out because as a healthcare PR person, you know, you're like tasked with figuring it out, right? I'm one of the most junior people on the team. And I think that was something from my my career that I loved. That's great. You know, I think that when we come out of college, we have this idealistic view of most of what the world does and the opportunities for you to fit into it. So there's usually that resetting of like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And the other elements of like, this is what the job is. I remember going through that as an engineer myself thinking, I'm going to redesign things and use lots of equations. And, you know, it was a lot of like bookkeeping, like how much does this cost and how much does this weigh? And, you know, are we using this material again It's an interesting adjustment, I think, from sort of academia, which is like this mind expansion to this conformist aspect of work. So tell us more about your career arc. So you eventually went to business school, right? I was in healthcare PR for for about three years. And then I was like, okay, this isn't really it. Like, again, I didn't have the creativity that I wanted to, to really let out into the world, right? Piggybacking on what you said earlier on, you know, you graduate and you think the world's this way and then you realize, oh wait, right? Like I was in New York, right? I thought I was gonna have the sex in the city life. Yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> so I said, okay, I need to get a new job that made more money and was a little bit more fulfilling. And so I actually sought out, I was like, well, I love people. HR, duh. Applied to a few HR roles, not really even knowing what the roles were. I had an idea of what HR was. I hadn't and didn't have anyone to kind of mentor me through that. So it is amazing to see myself now where I, I didn't have that many people to bounce ideas off of. I really meant, figured it out. So went into HR and that was an experience. It was very different. I worked at a commercial real estate firm. Um, You want to talk about a lack of Black people in in any field, that is definitely one of them. And it opened up my eyes to so much. 
And I learned a lot about myself there. It's the job that led me to say, I want to go back to school. I don't know what in what, but I want to go back to school. And one of the experiences that I think was a turning point for me, I overheard a consultant that was at my job talk about business school. Oh, business school. Again, had no idea what business school was. I didn't even really know what a consultant did, nonetheless. And he just talked it up. And I was like, oh my God, this sounds like an amazing experience. And that kind of sparked me to look into it. Sounds like business school can give me options and a great paying job. Win-win. And you went to Emory, right? Such fun memories of Emory. Yeah. That's a little bit of a different environment, being in the South and interesting kind of traditional campus. Yeah. You know, University of Maryland is a huge school. I had the big school experience and I wanted a smaller, tight-knit experience. I thrive in small environments. And yeah, Emory, those two years were amazing. Amazing. Again, I leaned towards a degree that gave me flexibility. And I mean, an MBA, I would push on anybody, quite frankly. It was an opportunity just to kind of take a step back and find me again. And it, it led me to where I am today from just being exposed. Again, it was back being in this learning environment of people that have done amazing things, right? And know, knew certain things back of hand. But my journey to business school was tough. I mean, I applied and I didn't get in the first rounds of, of business school when I applied. And that was very disheartening, right? Like I, I'm always one that's like, yes, I can do this. Took another stab at it the next year and got into schools. And that was amazing. But that wasn't without work, right? I have a liberal arts background. So I was like, okay, take the accounting classes, take the statistics classes. And I say that because oftentimes people will look and say, oh, she's so accomplished. But the truth of the matter is there were some lows, right? Being out of school and having to sit in a community college class because I couldn't grasp accounting. And I still hate accounting. I don't care. But at this point, business school was remarkable. It was remarkable being around such smart people. It opened up my eyes to loving marketing. I love that. And I would argue that having to take the extra classes and sitting in community college is a, is a sign of courage and determination. And so I think it's a great sign. Well, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Kira Kindlin from Foreverly. Do you have a startup idea and don't know where to start? Or maybe your startup is not moving fast enough. Well, let me introduce you to my new book, Trajectory Startup, which is designed to take you from idea to launch to revenue in just six months. Hi, I'm five-time founder Dave Parker. Trajectory Startup takes the mystery out of the startup process with a straightforward roadmap that includes deliverables, resources, and a timeline. It's a must-read for your entrepreneur journey. But don't take my word for it. Here's my friend Mandela. This is Mandela Schumacher-Hodge-Dixon, the CEO of Founder Gym, the number one online program training underrepresented founders on how to raise capital to scale their tech startups. If there is anything I've learned from building a successful business, it's that having a playbook you can trust matters a lot. Fortunately, Dave's superpower is simplifying the complex. And after decades of building, investing in, and studying a vast array of businesses, Dave has transformed his lessons into an easy-to-follow guide. Trajectory Startup is available at dkparker.com, amazon.com, or wherever books are sold. Get it today. So we're back with Kira from Foreverly. So Kira, I know that your journey eventually puts you into Microsoft, big pop of Microsoft. Tell us about that experience. And I know that somehow there's a connection into Foreverly as well. 
I mean, the one thing I always think about is I never saw myself moving to the Pacific Northwest. Again, Brooklyn girl, big city girl. I lived in Maryland, you know, D.C., let's call it Brooklyn, Atlanta, Seattle is a major city. Never saw myself moving there. Got the interview with Microsoft and I actually had a conflict, so I couldn't do the interview on campus. And I had never been to Seattle at this point. So I ended up going and getting through to the second round and eventually getting the offer. And I was super excited. But I said, oh, my God, I'd never been to Seattle. What is this girl doing moving across the country? And I went out on a limb and asked my recruiter, you know, to make a well-informed decision, would it be possible for me to visit? And she said, yes. And they made it happen. And that was the first sign for me to know, oh, maybe I need to give this a chance. Because again, moving all the way across country with no community support scared me. So fast forward, I land on an amazing team. Oh my gosh. I often don't say, you know, give luck too much credit because that would downplay all the effort I put in. But this was luck. You, you interview, you don't know where you're going to land in the company. And I had an amazing, amazing team. I landed on the Microsoft Teams marketing team in the early days. So it was awesome to be one of the first marketers on that team and had an amazing boss, just really invested in my well-being. And now one of my biggest, biggest supporters to this day. I mean, that's really, in my mind, what comes down to most experiences when you work at companies is the team you're on, the culture, and having supportive leadership that can help the organization and you at the same time align. So that's great. That's great. Were you able to settle into Seattle? How did you adjust to coming to the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, I did adjust it well. You know, the, Seattle has such a sweet spot in my heart. I learned so much about myself when pushing, you know, everyone says this, push yourself outside your comfort zone. But I really did. It was pushing myself outside my comfort zone by going to Seattle. And I loved that I met so many other people that had the same attitude. Everybody I would come across was like here to experience new things and be better than they were yesterday. And I loved that about living there. Also, I love how beautiful and lush Seattle is. Nobody talks about it. I miss it terribly. We can talk about where I am now, but I miss it terribly. And it was part of the impetus of finding happiness in nature that also led to Faverly. You know, I never hiked, but I started hiking and I was like, oh my gosh, like, look at me. And Microsoft was such a great training ground for me. I learned so much, just not even from a skill level, but just personally and what it meant to have personal growth on. You can show up and sit at the table and hold your ground and say the data and say the facts and try new things and test this and that. I say all that to say I had an amazing experience at Microsoft. And while there, I said, well, I want to give back to the world that's given so much to me. And that's when I said, well, I want to volunteer. How do I now use my time to do something for somebody else? And so I went online, volunteer site, and hospice volunteering came up. And it never crossed my mind ever to do hospice volunteering. I was just scrolling through the roles and the role stood out because um, it mentioned just being able to care for a loved one and, and watch over a loved one while the caregiver ran out just to do run an errand or to pick up groceries. And I said, wow, like, I want to talk about being able to give back my time to somebody who was likely really overwhelmed. And that really was like the turning point for me to focusing in on this very sacred and tender space of death and dying. Wow. That takes some courage for sure to step into that people's lives at that stage. 
So tell us, how did the idea for Foreverly emerge from this experience that you had? So pre-pandemic, my role was to offer respite to caregivers, which is, you know, look over their loved one while they ran out for to take care of an errand. Pandemic onward, it became phone call support for obvious reasons. And it became very clear to me in these conversations that one, people are still holding on to hope that their loved one is going to pull through. And I'll tell you, you know, just by definition, if you're on hospice, you have six months or less prognosis to live. And it made me take a step back and just listen and give people grace and let them know that everything they're feeling and going through is okay. A lot of my role has been just validating feelings. Who am I to tell you that you shouldn't feel angry or upset or guilty or shameful? any of those things. And that's kind of what I love about this space. No matter what you believe, no matter your religion, your race, none of that matters at the end of life. If we only gave people enough grace every day than we do at the end of life, the world would be a kinder place. And so back to your question just around how did this idea come about? Well, again, people are holding on to hope. And then when the loved one dies, they're often overwhelmed on what to do next. And I said, well, this is a broken system. You know, we can send people to space. I certainly can figure out how to leverage technology to do something different. And Beverly was first born out of, well, how can I help people plan a funeral? You need help trying to figure out how to do this. Most people have not done it in their lifetime. Learned very quickly, though, that people don't turn to Google to figure out how to plan a funeral, right? And, and it's something I, I will make a stake today is the blend of human touch and technology that's needed in this space is one I will hang my hat on. It's just a very human moment, which means technology is not going to solve everything. And it means there's a very thin line between logic and human behavior. And so I'm constantly being a social scientist around, well, how do people deal with death and what are the types of things they do and what is influencing their decisions? Because it's so different for everybody. That's a lot of introspection, which I'm sure has been over time. Do you remember the, the moment or the event or the catalyst that's where you said, not only do I want to try and figure this out, but I got to build a company. I got to go just go for it and do it. Like, do you remember what was the spark for that? You know, I told myself while I was in business school, I wanted to have a strong career foundationally at a, a huge company to, you know, to learn. But I knew at some point I was either going to leave to start my own business or to work at a startup and be completely passionate about it. It is no surprise to me that I went to start my own business right I have always been the person who would take charge. If you ask my dad, he would say, I'm either going to run the world or ruin it. And obviously, I'm not trying to do the latter. I was always very vocal and decisive on what I've wanted. And so it's kind of twofold. There was a point where I was just toiling with the idea. And I started talking to a couple of friends about it. My friend then lost her mother-in-law suddenly. And then things happened in threes, right? That happened. My grandmother died. And then my co-founder, his friend had catastrophic event happen. And I said, wow, all this is happening around the same time, right? Just on a personal, emotional level. But everyone is frazzled on what to do. And I said, well, there's got to be a better way. And I think that after those series of events, I started at least just exploring what it meant to, okay, well, what's out there? Oh, wait, there's some voids here. Wait, you mean to tell me we have brands for buying a home and getting married, but there's nothing for that? Like, where do people turn to? There's no authority? You're a marketer. Well, it's time to put those marketing skills to use. Now, granted, you're marketing one of the hardest categories, I would say, to market because people don't want to talk about it. But that's okay. You can be creative around how you can figure that out. 
So yeah, I think those series of events really kind of led to the light bulb going off and me saying, well, I know I don't have all the pieces together today, but I'll figure it out and figure out what Foreverly will be. And how did you meet your co-founder? How did you come to be co-founders, I guess? Well, we're raised together. My brother, (laughs) lucky me. Uh, He's my younger brother. We obviously have known each other our entire lives and we've not worked in a business capacity, but what I love about our relationship is we have very strong swim lanes. So I am very much the marketer of the business, the strategy, and he's all things tech. I care very little about how it happens. I just want it to work. Right? I give him all the authority and he cares very little around how do you think about your frontal strategy. right? And so it works out really well. And just on even on a personal note, we're very different. He's very pragmatic. I'm very thoughtful and we balance each other in such strong ways. Where, you know, I could be like completely blown about something and he's like, what are you even upset about? And that's such a healthy relationship to have. And yeah, it's been such an awesome journey working with him. So let's step back a second. Let's just help the audience understand who are the customers. I mean, you've obviously identified the stage or the life events that are going on around, but who's the customer? How does the service work exactly? What I mentioned about Foreverly's was its early vision, which was helping people plan funerals, but we've since kind of evolved a couple times. And right now, the product that we have, if you go to our website, you'll see is a Foreverly registry, which is a tool to help support somebody after they lose a loved one. Oftentimes, the griever, the person directly impacted, has a hard time articulating what it is they need. They often don't know. And on the other hand, people like you and me want to support, right? I probably don't have to nail this, you know, being that hammer on the nail too hard on this, but think of the last time you had someone you care about lose a loved one. You likely stumbled over what to say, what to do, how to approach it. You knew you needed to do something though, right? Like you knew you needed to at least acknowledge it, flowers, food. And what I've come to find um, just through lots of insights is the flowers, the casseroles are great. But there are so many other practical things that people need. And so there is a little bit of education that needs to happen around what's helpful. And so now where we stand today is serving companies, right? Oftentimes when we look at the life cycle of an employee, you know, if they're with you long enough, they might get married and buy homes and have babies. But it could be very possible that they lose someone that they love. And there are very few companies, at least in my research, that are doing something specific for that life moment. What's standard? You know, people will say, here, visit our EAP and take a few days off. And if you're lucky, you have a manager that is okay with you taking more time. But the truth of the matter is that only solves for the onset of the death. Grief has no timeline from a psychological point, from a mental, emotional point, and then even administratively. Right? Most people don't know you need to file a, an estate tax return nine months after a death. Right? You're finding these things out as you go, and that's stressful because life doesn't stop. And so when I think about customers, I mean, from a psychographic point of view, it's companies that are caring about their people, right? Trying to take what care means to the next level. How do you humanize your bereavement policy? Because very few companies do, and they're floundering when it comes to that moment. And whether that's ill-equipped managers, whether that's HR that, you know, tries to step in and does, does something, but there's such a space that people could be doing and paying more attention to in terms of how you care for somebody. Um, you know, we are very celebratory when you hit the 10-year anniversary, but if I lose my wife, you know, thank you for the time off and thank you for the flowers and the food, but how else are you supporting me through that? Because 
my entire world has just shifted, right? And I appreciate the acknowledgement on at the very beginning of my journey, but I'm dealing with that every day. And I speak to so many people who are dealing with that on a day-to-day basis. So yeah, we're, we're really excited to focus on a B2B aspect and how you can better serve employees who serve you. That's great. And I imagine that over COVID, I don't even really know how to say it, but this probably was an even more needed value add for people who are in the shock of maybe people that didn't have, weren't sick before or weren't, you know, were relatively healthy, or at least, you know, there wasn't this impending aspect that you might see from hospice, right? Where it was like people were here and then they were gone. And in some cases, you didn't get to see them or say goodbye. I mean, COVID was just crazy that way. So I imagine there was some increased interest in this space and, and foreverly specifically. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the amount of disenfranchised grief that people have had to face. When I tell people this, what's great is that it makes people more comfortable sharing stories around death because most people don't talk about it. And, and so I love leaning in with a listening ear. And so many people have had to go through that time and it feels so lonely. Right? You don't really, people don't really talk about it. And it has just ranged the gamut in terms of what people have shared. And you're right, very tragic stories of losing someone and not even being able to be there, right? And so from a company point of view, right, your people are your greatest asset. Now, how are you helping them through that? And you're right, people have leaned in. I mean, if COVID has taught us anything, it is that death is inevitable and you can't change it, right? And that's the same thing. It's like Foreverly is not going to fix the biggest problem, which is bring a loved one back. But what it can do is at least offer you the space to heal, right? And figure that out. And there's no timeline for that. And that comes up in a lot of different ways and how we're thinking about approaching everyone's unique journey because everyone also grieves differently. So, I mean, not to geek out on the business case, but it's part of the reason why I love it as well. Like there's no two journeys that are alike. You can't tell me how to grieve. It's just like when you buy a home, you're never gonna get 100% of what you want. And because of that individuality aspect, it makes it very important to have an approach, right? And so many companies were caught without an approach on how to deal with that outside of the standard norms. Yeah, you're completely right. And I think as companies think about the benefits, and we're in this really interesting time where like retention is so hard, right? The great resignation and all that, right? You know, companies are going to have to step up. And these are the things that are going to make the big difference. Like you said, not the 10-year watch or the free foosball or, or you know, Dr. Pepper's in the lunchroom. Those are good, but this is where you can show meaningful impact in people's lives. So tell us, Kira, I always like to ask, so you're on a great trajectory. At some point, you will be able to call this a success, right? So you think back to the vision you originally had and where you want to take it. So let's say it's five years from now and Dan comes back and says, was this a success? And you say, yes. Why? What would it look like for you to say this is success? Outside of being a Drake lyric, that is on the list, by the way, to become so mainstream that I'm in a Drake song. Outside of that, though, it would be the point where death occurs, whether it's you or, or someone else. And I always say it's unfortunate that I even have to say that, but you'll turn and think of Foreverly. You'll turn to Foreverly. You don't know what to do. You're going to go, Foreverly is the first thing that pops up. Like being tied to that trigger is so important to me, given that we often fret on what to do. We're supporting people in a lot of different ways. What I recognize is just this 
particular aftercare after loss space is huge, right? From pets to people to the religion aspects, the cultural aspects. There's so many overlaps that I would love to be able to conquer one day and say foreverly is the place to turn to no matter what walk of life you've gone through. And so outside of being a household name that people know and love, it's also just a place that feels very safe and trusted. And, you know, it's weird describing it as this tangible thing because it's not. But I think the brands that we end up in, the companies we end up loving, just they feel like something unique and special. And that's what I crave for Foreverly to be. I am extremely intentional about how I think about this company. And I have to be, right? We were talking about one of the most tender, difficult, devastating moments in somebody's life. And, you know, sometimes I'm like, Kara, you got to move faster. You got to do this. You got to do that. But I say slow is smooth and smooth is fast, specifically at a, in a space where all the insights haven't been uncovered yet. There's tons of people trying to figure it out. But the thoughtfulness is what got me here. And the thoughtfulness is what's going to get me to that five-year success. And so to kind of just bring it back to what I want forever really to be, I want it to be the company that you turn to and then timely death occurs. I wanted to be able to help bring space as you think about how to move forward after losing somebody you love. And I want it to be the thing that you can lean on. I'll share this last note. You know, the death anniversary is a day that so many people will never talk about, but it's really hard and no one acknowledges it. Even in my own practice, not, you know, having been in this space, I write down the dates of when my loved ones have a, a loss. Because it's a really hard day. And then let's not forget Mother's Day, Father's Day, Veterans Day, wedding anniversaries, birthdays that often, you know, very celebratory, but it's painful for a lot of people. And I want Fairly to be that, that company that thinks about you on that day. And because grief has no timeline and it has no end, I look forward to walking alongside people as they kind of continue to cope with loss. That's a powerful vision. And it will be such a gift to the world if and when you're successful at that. Well, we're going to take another short break and we'll be right back with Kira Kindlin of Foreverly. Do you have a startup idea and don't know where to start? Or maybe your startup is not moving fast enough. Well, let me introduce you to my new book, Trajectory Startup, which is designed to take you from idea to launch to revenue in just six months. Hi, I'm five-time founder Dave Parker. Trajectory Startup takes the mystery out of the startup process with a straightforward roadmap that includes deliverables, resources, and a timeline. It's a must-read for your entrepreneur journey. But don't take my word for it. Here's my friend Mandela. Hi, this is Mandela Schumacher-Hodge-Dixon, the CEO of Founder Gym, the number one online program training underrepresented founders on how to raise capital to scale their tech startups. If there is anything I've learned from building a successful business, it's that having a playbook you can trust matters a lot. Fortunately, Dave's superpower is simplifying the complex. And after decades of building, investing in, and studying a vast array of businesses, Dave has transformed his lessons into an easy-to-follow guide. Trajectory Startup is available at dkparker.com, amazon.com, or wherever books are sold. Get it today. So we're back with Kira from Foreverly. Before we, we move on to other things, I'm sure there's lots of people listening who really don't know a lot about this space from an industry point of view. Tell us something about this industry. I don't know if they call it the death industry, but tell us something that we wouldn't expect or might surprise us about this industry. 
So yeah, they do call it the death end of life industry. That's typically made up of just the funeral home kind of space and all the services and things that come along with that. It's a $21 billion industry, by the way. Often people are sticker shocked by the price of a funeral. That's on average around $10,000. And I say that because that's probably one of the biggest grievances we hear around, you know, caring for a loved one after they die and wanting to honor their legacy, but not being able to afford that. So that's one thing. I would say another one is just how the space is evolving, not only from a let's save our earth, right? There are so many more earth-friendly ways that you can die. So for example, you can uh, decompose into soil and planted. You can send ashes into space. People turn cremated remains is actually the technical term into diamonds. There's so many very interesting things that are happening. Honestly, the metaverse and immortality kind of scares me. That's my biggest fear. There are companies working on longevity and what it means for us to live longer, which is just like fascinating in itself. So despite it being inevitable, it is really interesting to kind of look at this space just as a consumer, as technology and just the future really shapes our behavior now. But yeah, those are a few that come to mind for me. And those are great insights. Most of what you just said is something that I don't know. (laughs) I know sometimes when you're so immersed in an industry, you think everybody knows this. But most of what you just said was pretty revealing to me. Well, let's switch gears. Let's talk a little bit about you as a founder. And one of the questions I had was, as an African-American woman, you had a couple different corporate experiences, and now you're an entrepreneur. How do you think you were viewed, or how did you feel if there was a difference, if there was any differences between being in the corporate environment and now being an entrepreneur as an African-American woman? You know, the one that stands out, at least that comes to mind first, is the weight of what success has to look like. I mean, it was already heavy being in a corporate environment and feeling like being underestimated as far as what I can deliver. It became apparent to me in certain scenarios in a corporate environment and having a salary in a company and, you know, the notoriety of Microsoft can help with some of that in certain ways. But on the other hand, it was, okay, well, how do I do this better? It was easier to make an action plan around how I could respond to certain things. Entrepreneurship has been a positively challenging experience as a Black woman. You know, I literally, people say what your hobby is, it's practicing mindfulness because literally every day I wake up at six and read for 20 to 30 minutes, something positive and uplifting to shape my day because it is so easy to get bogged down by the fear or feeling inadequate or unprepared or not feeling like my ducks in a row partially because I'm black, partially because I'm a woman. You know, I've, I've watched, you know, so many documentaries on on the tech startups and you hear the glamour stories. And there's a lot that isn't shared, right, around how people got to the places where they are. And I was, I'm not afforded all that privilege. There's privilege that has not been afforded to me. And as much as I can get upset about that, I'm like, well, I can't change any of that. Is that going to stop you from starting the business? No. So how do you come up with a plan and get creative, right? Your ancestors got creative. Well, how are you about to be creative about what you're about to do? Keeping that discipline, though, and that resilience and perseverance is really hard. You know, I always say I don't have unlimited discipline. You know, I work out every day. I read every day. I try to go for a walk every day. And it's partly because those things help me believe in myself. And so when I compare working in corporate America to being an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, I've had to become somebody different. 
mean, I had this revelation a few months ago on what's required of me now is way different than what's required as Kira as the individual contributor. Now, success literally falls on my shoulders, which means a few things. I need to do better at kind of managing how I look at failure. I need to do better at just managing my emotions and my circumstances, right? Because before I could stand behind the company and I still got paid anyway, that's not the case now. There's no days off. I'm like, I have personal things to do. What a joke. And so I think the hardest part has been having that mind shift, but also the most fulfilling to say, all right, Kira, you are betting on yourself. There is nobody else you'd rather bet on. As a Black woman, as a a mother, as someone who is a first-generation college student, you figured it out until this point. How dare you not use those actions to show you you can keep going? I love that. Is there been ways in which the world has positively acknowledged you as a Black woman founder? Have there been positive or uplifting ways where people have identified you as a Black woman founder that's resonated with you either as an ally or somebody who's in an organization or a mentor or even just a customer maybe? So yes, in short, yes. Oftentimes, it's definitely a double-edged sword, right? Because self-doubt is a powerful thing, right? Like doubting yourself when so many people believe in you. And I, I think about the one manager that I had when I landed at Microsoft and she believes in me. I reached out to her recently, actually. She's like, Kara, what do you need? And that feels weird, right? Like that just feels weird. People willing to help and not being comfortable asking for help. I've not asked for help in my career. I haven't had people kind of give me opportunities and that sort of thing. And so it's very foreign. But that same woman has just been shouting from the rooftops around my abilities. And she always saw it in me. And I and I thank her tenfold for that, for saying you are a Black woman founder with a unique perspective, shine bright and show the world. And that has been such a guiding light for me to continue to hit the ground running. And yeah, you fall, you scrape your knee and it hurts. And learn from the emotions of the hurt. Keep it moving after that. She definitely celebrates that in me. And I think just in general, I have friends that even tell me the same thing. Like, you're doing it. Sometimes I have to remind myself of like, like you're doing it. You quit the six-figure job to pursue a dream. You are actively doing it despite feeling like you haven't come far on some days. It's small progress that you have to celebrate because you are literally on the journey to changing your entire life. You just have to take it little by little. I think those reminders are so important. Kind of what's on my heart as I think about that question is just the importance of community. So many of us try to do it by ourselves and are not vulnerable in this. And I tell people it's hard. It is very hard trying to wear every function hat and, you know, drive a business and try to think about fundraising and manage home and manage family. And it is very hard. But the community and finding people that believe in you is just so important to turn to for the reminder when you're like, yo, I had a bad day. And they are the people that build me back up. I'm like, ah, oh, thank you. Like, I need that. Because intrinsically, you do get depleted at moments. So yeah, there's a, so many people I, I can't wait to thank with surprise trips in my future. But yeah, it is. it feels so good to have that. That's awesome. And, and, and for me, it, that encapsulates the journey for a lot of underrepresented founders, right? Is that there is this affirmation that happens and it almost like it has to happen because of that self-reservation or self-doubt or because there's in other places or in other ways you've been given that message, right? That there is a gap between what you can do and who you are, right? And so you internalize that. And so you need that external affirmation to kind of balance it off. And I think the entrepreneurs who 
can recognize that and appreciate and welcome that in because sometimes the stoic bootstraps isn't going to work. Awesome conversation here. We're, we're coming up on time, but I always like to ask the question, sort of the retrospective of if this Kira, with, with all of her wisdom, could go back and talk to the pre-startup Kira, what advice would you give her? What wisdom would you share? What would you tell her to watch out for or to run towards? Or what would you share with her about the journey she's about to go on? The first thought that comes to mind is be married to the problem and not the solution. You know, so oftentimes as founders and entrepreneurs, you get so hung up on this one thing and you start validating it and or actually you're biased. So you're finding biased information to validate whatever insights that you've had. And that can leave you in a, in a rut or in a pickle because you're not making progress or moving as quickly. And it's because you are married to the solution, right? And that was me in the beginning of, oh, I know this has got to work. This has got to be it. And kind of working backwards. And I've learned to take a step back from that. You know, when I had my pivot from focusing on the funeral space to saying, how can I support people thereafter? I actually had to take a moment to stop and write my why. I was like, why do you want to do this again? And kind of think in a reverse engineering fashion to say, well, here's what you want the big vision to be and what's going to get you there. And you're not going to always have all the answers, but at least help me kind of crystallize where I want to go. The other thing is just do it. Confidence is what turns thoughts into actions. confidence is such an important part of being an entrepreneur. People don't believe in you if you say something halfway. They believe in you if you say it with confidence, right? It starts just as small as that. And so building up my confidence, I actively figure out ways, this is again through my reading daily, on how can I keep my confidence intact? Because it's that's what keeps you going. And you know, when you have the failures, picks you back up and say, okay, I can do this. And the last thing that kind of comes to mind is, you know, always be good to people. That doesn't come from, oh, I was bad to somebody. So I was like, okay, you should have done something differently. But rather, you just never know who knows who and and leaning on your network. And so I wish I would have did that sooner. You know, again, I'm so accustomed to just figuring stuff out the hard way instead of thinking smarter, which was, well, who do I know? Right? Like, don't ever take for granted the people who you know and who believe in you. And I kick myself from not tapping into my network earlier. And I literally the other day, like wrote a list of every network I'm a part of, whether it's my sorority or grad school or Microsoft network and said, who do I know that might be connected to somebody that can help me and being very open with that. And so stepping into that vulnerability around asking for help is really, really important with that. But yeah, those are the three things that a hundred percent I'm leaning into now. So Kira, younger Kira. Man, 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 I hope you're listening. <laughs> Thank you for sharing those great insights and, and lots of wisdom, as I said. Well, we're coming to the end of our time, Kira. This has been so great. But before we finish, we always like to have a call to action to Founder Nation. If there's some way that we can be helpful to Foreverly or to you specifically, let us know. Absolutely. I would love, feel free to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at, at Foreverly Co. And if you know someone who is dealing with the death of a loved one, please reach out to me via DM. I would love to figure out how I can help you with that. It's an overlooked time that often people don't have a place to turn to for help. And I'd love to be that person. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Kira. This has been an incredible conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you so much, Dan, for having me. We'd like to thank our guest, Kira Kindlin, and our sponsor, Trajectory Startup. 
This podcast was produced by me, Dan Kihanya, with audio editing and production by We Edit Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, or simply go to foundersunfound.com forward slash listen to. That's listen, T-O. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn at Founders Unfound. Thanks so much for tuning in. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.